Hi, everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From?, hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we are joined by an exceptional scientist and guest, Ashley, who is currently a graduate student at Boise State University. Let's welcome to the stage, Ashley. Hey, Ashley, how's it going? Hey, Karina, how's it going? Thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. Of course, of course. We're just excited to have you. So Ashley Boza is a fourth year geosciences doctoral student at Boise State University. She is also a volcanologist, which is just so fascinating. I love it and I love saying it. <laughs> uh, she was born and raised in Southern Colorado where geology abounds. And uh, it also gave her an introduction, which I hope we cover to her love of the earth. She's currently working on a twofold project in graduate school. The first part of the project is to monitor rain-triggered lahars, or volcanic mudflows, at Vulcan de Fuego in Guatemala. The second part of the project is to develop a collaborative volcanic hazards educational training workshop for a local community in the Cascades, close to me. In her spare time, Ashley enjoys outreach and science communication and in being an advocate for those topics. She also has her own podcast entitled The Epic Earth Podcast, aimed at discussing varying topics for the STEM curioso. We are exceptionally excited to have Ashley on our podcast, and here we go. So Ashley, the first question that we always like to start off with our guests is give us a little bit of insight as to Ashley, what drives you as a person and your background. Oh my gosh. Okay. Little small question to start off with. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I grew up in Southern Colorado. It's very beautiful area in the San Luis Valley. Um, you're just surrounded by these overshadowing mountains there, the Sangres to the east and the San Juans to the west. Um, and so you're just in this big valley of just beautiful landscapes. And uh, I, I have to say that growing up there, I hated it because it's so, you know, small communities. And so you're a child and you just want to like go out and experience everything. And um, I think that's what really drove me to sort of get out of the comfort zone when I graduated from high school and uh, go and explore other parts of the world. And I was fortunate enough to have a family as well that loved to explore the world. So even as a child growing up, I got to got to go to different sort of corners of of our own planet and just discover what's out there. I'm a quirky person. I am a nerd. Uh, I love science. I love talking about science and uh, nothing drives me more than to go to outreach events and just see, uh, you know, kids faces light up when you talk about some of the cool stuff that that science offers. So quirky scientist. I love it. Um, that's what I think we can all kind of relate back to. Um, so Give us a little bit of an introduction as to how did you get involved with geology and geosciences? Was there a person? Was there a time and instance that you can really pinpoint? Oh, man. Okay. Well, yeah. So my route into geology was actually very circuitous. I did not start out as a geologist. Um, I actually, my first degree at CU Boulder was in um, anthropology. So kind of similar social sciences, but, um, but what I really wanted to do was I wanted to teach. And so I got a licensure in elementary education. And that was just my focus is I'm just going to be a teacher and I love children and this is what I'm going to do. 
Um, and then I went and taught, I actually taught overseas in England for a few years um, after I graduated from CU and had some, you know, fairly good experiences, but overall I felt like the teaching realm wasn't really what I thought it might be. And so I started to think about, you know, what, what are other sort of careers that I could partake in? And actually, and I hear this a lot from a lot of you know, geoscience students is that when I was at CU, I actually was required to take an earth science course and I ended up taking geology as my earth science course. It was probably my favorite class that I took while I was at CU Boulder. And uh, I didn't, I didn't anticipate that it would be, I was like, oh, here we go. I'm going to learn about a bunch of rocks, but actually it was just so engaging and it was such a fun class. And the professor who taught it was just so engaging. And I did exceptionally well in that class for whatever reason. Um, but it was sort of late in my career at CU Boulder. So the idea of, of sort of switching my major was not something that I had really honed in on. But since that point, I'd been telling people who were going sort of through school, you know, hey, like, you should take a geology course, I, I think you'd find it fascinating, or, um, you know, it it was just always something that I advocated for, for people going to college, even if like they were going for like accounting or business. I'm like, take a geology course. You're going to love it. And it wasn't until probably about um, 10 years later that finally one of my friends was like, well, you should take a geology course. Like they were sick of hearing me talk about taking a geology course. So uh, and I sat there and I thought about it and I was like, well, why don't I just go get a degree in geology? Because I love it so much. And so, um, yeah, I think that was sort of the turning point of when I finally was like, no, I'm just going to go get a degree in it. And the funny thing about volcanology is the San Juans, where I grew up, they're a volcanic complex. And um, without even knowing it, I grew up around these, these volcanic settings. And I love the San Juans. It's one of my favorite places to travel to. And uh, I think it was just like ingrained inherently in me that volcanoes is what I wanted to do. I used to sit and watch lava videos for hours on end and it was just had a curious sort of nature about, you know, how those lava flows form and why they cool the way that they do. Why do they flow? Why, why is that black crust sort of forming on the top? I was just innately curious about, about the processes involved in that. And so when I went back, um, to school to do geology, I said, well, if I'm going to go back, I'm going to do volcanology because that's what I have a passion for. And uh, here I am uh, now six years later um, in sort of the final years of my PhD and getting volcanology degree. So I couldn't be happier. Um, it's a really cool topic. Well, that's really exciting. And whenever I say I'm talking to a volcanologist, everyone's like, ooh. <laughs> What is that? I get the Star Trek jokes like, oh, you speak, you know, Vulcan. I'm like, no, it's a different type of Vulcanology, not. <laughs> yes, yes, I got that too once. Um, so what impacts you in the work that you do? The biggest impact for me is just the intrinsic reward of being able to help people, you know, but we don't think about volcanoes very often here in the United States because we don't have ones that pop off every day, except maybe up in Alaska and in Hawaii where it's more frequent. But 
But where we live in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we don't, maybe there's two that occur every century, two eruptions that occur every century. So people really don't have it on their timelines. They don't think about it much. But, um, but there's a real risk in living in those zones, in those areas. And so I think being able to engage communities and sort of learning about what the volcanic risks are, why volcanoes are so cool. Oftentimes I'll tell students, you know, kids will come up to me and they were like, I'm very afraid of volcanoes. And I'm like, well, you know, the more you know about a, a topic, the less afraid you become of it. And, uh, and they love that. They love to sort of engage in the volcanic activities and afterwards, the, you know, the, we'll get feedback where they're like, I never knew volcanoes were so cool, which just obviously warms my heart. Um, and so I feel like the biggest impact is just sort of being able to engage communities in the science behind volcanism and then also being able to make sure that they're less scared of these processes and being more prepared um, in the terms of a volcanic eruption where they live. So. Well, it's an, it, it's an interesting topic, too, because when you think of volcanoes and specifically kids, um, I think their only um, introduction to volcanoes is through Hollywood. And so when you think about Dante's Peak or Volcano or any of those big movies, I mean, there is an inherent sort of fear mm -hmm. um, with a volcano um, and it's not in your control. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good point. And unless you grew up reading volcanic books or, um, you know, like the Nat Geo type of informational books or Scholastic, um, your understanding of volcanoes might be very limited to just those exploited types of scenarios where, you know, you have these like very exaggerated types of eruptions. And not to say that those types of eruptions don't exist or wouldn't exist at any point, but yeah, I mean, those things can definitely trigger a fear of of these processes. And yeah, that's a real, I, I like that point. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, so thinking about future thinking and future careers and aspirations, um, you know, you have been a teacher before and now you're going to get a PhD. So are you going to return to teaching or what do you think are your career aspirations post PhD? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, I've always been geared towards working in industry. So working for um, either state or federal agencies like the U.S. Geological Survey, they are the main research sort of hub for a lot of volcanic type of activity. Um, but, you know, I'm also working with um, on the risk and hazard mitigation side, especially with this community workshop, you know, we work a lot with emergency managers um, and community planners because those are the people who effectively are the frontline people during volcanic crises. So um, it's really fun and interesting to see from their perspective, you know, what's important and how they disseminate information to their community members. Um, and so for me, I, although I love the teaching aspect, I think what I find is that I do a lot of outreach because it connects me still with that K through 12 sort of pathway. Um, but I don't think I, I like the teaching so much in a formal setting. I think I prefer sort of the outreach component and the community-based sort of educational component where you get to really engage with, with the community rather than me just standing up there telling you what a volcano is and why it's dangerous, so. 
Well, and there's there's confines of engagement in the fact that, you know, which we'll get into obviously when you describe your workshops, but it's, you know, give me a topic and a piece of content and then let's build the sort of curriculum around there. I think the educational curriculum now is very proficiency based. Um, and so it's very rigor, uh, rigorous. Um, whereas I think when you think about workshops, it's very collaborative. Um, which the teaching process isn't. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. That's a very good point. And I think that, you know, I you know, I was just talking to my USGS colleagues and and I was telling them, you know, my perspective and, and what I'm seeing, you know, at scientific assemblies, these big conferences that all the scientists go to and tell them, here's my research, it's cool, and this is why it's cool. Um, and then, you know, you're learning from different types of methods from, from the scientists, but I, what I'm seeing a lot more of now is they're actually bringing in behavioral scientists. They're bring, bringing in the behavioral sort of sociological side of, of the science because they're understanding it's actually such an important aspect to the research that we do. And, and I love it. I love to see that component sort of flooding into some of these, you know, scientific assemblies where before it was just, you know, academic rigor like this is it's just about the science and now it's more about how do we take this science and and give it out to the general public and um, even some of those those conferences now involve you know the emergency response teams civil defense and it is more collaborative and i'm i'm just loving it i'm i'm loving that those things are happening um and of course, all of those things are also, you know, they're in their bubbles and they work exclusively of each other, but but it's cool to see them overlapping as well as, as sort of these meetings that we have. Um, yeah. And create synergies amongst each other. I think very much science traditionally and historically has been a pretty siloed endeavor. Mm -hmm. And at least I think you're echoing some of the trends that I'm seeing as well is that you know, you're you're getting folks who have a variety of different backgrounds who are contributing for social good, social justice, um, you know, the benefit of a community. Um, and that's not just in STEM, but it's how to STEM then augment some of their work, precisely to your point. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, sometimes those people know more about the volcano that they live around than than the actual scientists right like a lot of my work as you mentioned takes place in guatemala i mean i travel to this volcano i i've read all the research behind it i'm going to conduct my own research but we rely so heavily on locals guatemalan locals to get us around the mountain to tell us where the best places to deploy our instruments are to you know, gain us that access into the areas where we're conducting our research and um, to be in, I mean, a lot of them are in contact with the actual agency that monitors this volcano. So without their help, we would just be completely lost, you know, and so it's important to remember that that sometimes those people have a way bigger knowledge base than even the scientists do and, and gaining that knowledge and sharing it with them is really important. So... Well, and I think that that's a great segue then to start talking a little bit about your two varying um, research projects. And as you said, um, as I said in your bio, the first one takes place in Guatemala. And so I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, how did you historically get involved? Um, what are you studying? What is the basic overview of sort of your, your field um, and involvement there? 
Yeah, so um, it's interesting because obviously my background is in geology, but there is also this aspect of geophysics, which is uh, monitoring volcanoes. And that's that's probably what most people think about when they think about monitoring volcanoes is the geophysical side, which is the seismic monitors and, and a lot of the remote sensing sort of monitors that scientists use in order to sort of look at and detect sort of changes in volcanoes. And um, I started working with uh, Dr. Jeff Johnson, who is a geophysicist here at Boise State, and he works specifically on volcanoes. His um, specific interest is, I mean, he he's trained in seismology, but he uh, he takes a special interest in something called the infrasound, which is anything below 20 hertz frequency. So uh, it's below the human threshold of hearing. So human hearing is between 20 hertz and 22,000 hertz. So uh, there's a big range there for the audible range, but we can't hear the infrasound, but it's there. And, and big things generally produce big frequencies and they produce these sounds. And it's interesting to sort of complement the seismic with this infrasound. Um, and so specifically what I work on is uh, we, we work um, on deploying both seismic and infrasound instruments, and we monitor these seasonal rain-triggered mud flows that happen on Fuego. Um, Fuego is a perfect laboratory for it because these, these, uh, these mud flows happen, you know, dozens of times over the course of a rainy season from May to October. And so in, and typically lahars as they're known, don't, they're unpredictable. We don't know when they're gonna happen. We just know, okay, there's, they could happen a hundred years, up to a hundred years after a volcanic eruption, but we don't know the precise moment that they're gonna occur. So what makes Fuego very special is that we know that every season there's going to be some amount of lahars that occur in the drainages around there. And so it just makes it a perfect place to place sensors and be able to monitor those. Um, and then on top of monitoring them, which the agency down there called Insivume, they're the volcanic monitoring agency. They already do very well um, at monitoring these lahars. Uh, but on top of under, um, of monitoring them, we also try to understand sort of the internal dynamics, sort of the internal flow behaviors of these lahars. They're very destructive. They're very dense. They carry a lot of sediment. They travel at very fast velocities. Um, even the small lahars, which typically occur at Fuego, um, I mean, they they can destroy bridges and houses and they can carry cars down the stream with them. Um, they're definitely not something you wanna be in the drainage uh, if one of those things is coming down. And so in order to sort of get a better idea of the um, type of destruction that these lahars will, will um, create downstream, we try to understand sort of the internal flow behaviors and we use the seismic and infrasound to uh, look at, you know, energetics. So we look at the power that is coming off of these lahars as they're traveling downstream. And what we're, we're noticing is that those energetics change as flows go downstream and they're different between different lahars. So, uh, you know, lahars typically pick up a lot of sediment as they move downstream. So they're what we call bulking up. So they're growing in size with the sediment and your energetics might go up at that point. 
And so you can see that in the seismic and infrasound. You can pinpoint where in the drainage that's happening. Um, and then they also tend to um, aggregate or deposit a lot of that sediment. And so you can also see that in the energetics. You can see where those, those uh, energetics are fluctuating. Uh, the other thing is, is that they come in pulses. So these lahars tend to have multiple surges during these events. And so you can actually see at the fronts of these pulses, the energetics going up. And then as it gets more towards the tail end of those pulses, the energetics start to dwindle a little bit. Um, it's just really cool science to see how uh, even just something as simple as power is being, um, you know, influenced by these flows and how they change you know, over the course of one lahar, but also between lahar events. And they change over drainages too. One drainage will act differently in their flow behaviors than another drainage. And, it, and that has more to do with sort of the um, shape of the drainage and the geometry of the channel itself. Um, they're very complex sort of volcanic processes and, and they're still relatively poorly understood just because you can't stick a camera down in the drainage during one of these events and gather any information. And so a lot of our understanding is, is basically inferred from a lot of different experiments that people are trying to innovatively come up with in order to monitor those flow behaviors. Well, it's really interesting because it's indirect metrics and monitoring. Um, I mean, you can stick a camera, you probably won't get anything because yeah. it'll poof. Um, yeah, there have, it, been, oh, yeah there have been people that have actually stuck uh, buckets you know, on like long sticks into the drainage as one of these flows is coming down. And it's, it's, I mean, some people can actually gain some like ideas about sediment flow during that part. But I mean, it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. And I don't think you want to be holding your hand down there for very long because you're gripping it so hard, so. <laughs> no. Um, so if you were to able, or you were, you are able, I should say, to metricize all of these different lahars and vents, is the idea then for applying the algorithms that you can outline to other volcanoes or what would be the translation to other activities? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's such a great question. So um, yes, is the short answer is that we're always looking for ways that we can sort of analog one volcano and then apply it to another volcano. Uh, the thing about volcanoes is they're so complex and um, every volcano behaves in its own way. It's got its own fingerprint. It does its own thing. It sometimes just confuses us because they'll do something sort of unexpected that we maybe have not seen in the past. Um, that rarely happens. Most of the stuff that has happened in the past happens now. But um, yeah, they're they're kind of temperamental. They do what they want. And, um, and so we can take this knowledge and we can apply it to other volcanoes, but I think the most important aspect of this research is that we are trying to understand how we can monitor them better um, and be able to implement them into early warning systems. Um, a lot of volcanoes have 24-hour uh, monitored sensors, which means all of that information that's being picked up is being sent back to a headquarters and someone's looking at a monitor 24-7 out, you know, 24 seven and they're 
looking to see if there's any sort of activity in those drainages. And so if we can, you know, implement better instrumentation for them, it gives them much more time to send out warning messages um, and to get that information out to people who might be affected by these, these volcanic hazards, so. No, perfect. Um, that's a, That was my use case that I was anticipating your answer, so that's even better. And I, I mean, I live very close to Rainier, so mm -hmm. um, knock on wood that I hope that they have a great monitoring system there. Um. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> they do. They have, you know, the USGS is, is working on it constantly to implement better instrumentation. And uh, they're getting, I think, you know, they're pretty good. It's not perfect. You know, it's even around, you know, some of these volcanoes, people might only have a 30, 20 or 30 minute warning, which is definitely not enough time. Um, but they're, they're working and with more advancement in science, we'll be able to, to really up those, those times, I think. So talk to me a little bit more about your second project now with respect to the workshops um, in an entirely different area of the world. Yeah, so um, I'm kind of excited about this. It's it's sort of, we haven't really got the ball rolling just yet on it. We're sort of in the, the primitive stages of it. Um, but uh, my advisor now, Dr. Brittany Brand here at Boise State, she's formally trained in volcanology, but um, she has in the past, you know, five or so years, um, co-developed this this uh, institute, it's called the Hazards and Climate Resilient Institute. And it's basically um, taking pillars of these communities from economic to environmental to community-based and seeing how they overlap and then going into communities and helping co-develop and co-partnership with these communities to develop um, sort of resilience against a lot of the natural hazards that these communities face. Here in Idaho, of course, that's not really a volcanic concern, but it, it does include things like wildfire and flooding and um, rock slides and landslides, things like that. And so um, it's a it's a great opportunity for, uh, you know, universities in general to just go in and, and see what these communities are implementing in terms of their policies and then seeing how actually the science communication part of it, because we go in and we say, well, what's the most important thing to you? What What is the information that you want to know? You know, and those communities, some will come back and be like, we want to know all the hazards surrounding us, or they might be more uh, engaged in wildfires because it's the most recent hazard that they've had. And so, um, yeah, it's just a really cool project to sort of get involved in. Um, and so we're sort of taking that, and because she has a, a formal training in volcanology, she's always wanted to get into the volcanic aspect of things. But again, volcanic uh, hazards are very complicated. They're complex because um, unlike an earthquake or a flood or even a wildfire, I mean, wildfires can last for a good amount of time, durations of a couple months, maybe. Um, obviously, your season lasts for several months. Flooding can have damage that is either occurring immediately or over, you know, durations of a couple of weeks. With volcanoes, 
it's it's harder to sort of gauge how long that duration will be. It could be anything from hours to years that the duration of these volcanic hazards are occurring. Educating community members about some of those hazards can be a little bit more complex because you don't want to move people out of their homes if the volcanic hazards are going to last over years, right? Like there's an economic downfall to that. And it's a and so we're trying to bridge sort of some of these ideas about uh, information dissemination. How do we get sort of the science out there, but at a very basic level to communities um, to help them prepare for such sort of like volcanic events and really build self-efficacy, really build that self-power on, I would know what to do if a volcanic crisis happened. I would know where to go. I would know, you know, what to pack, what to take, you know. So that's the kind of thing that we're starting to implement a lot with the USGS. Um, and then on the Boise State side of things, we're going in and we're, we're you know, trying to build a, a training workshop. Hopefully um, it's a training workshop. It might look like something else, depending on what they want from us. But emergency responders and sort of emergency managers, community planners, um, the frontline people, you know, training them on volcanic hazards, what that will look like in their specific area, and what are the things that they can take away, a toolkit that we can build with them that would help sort of them communicate that to their residents. Um, and so, yeah, again, we're still in the early stages of it, but it's it's more of that community outreach, outreach-based sort of component to um, volcan volcanic hazards. And uh, I'll be doing that hopefully in the Cascades, like you said, around Mount Hood is the is the hope. Um, but yeah, it's it's a different volcano, different hazards. I mean, a lot of the same volcanic hazards, but in a different sort of, um, I guess, different sort of setting. So they're going to look different than they would at Fuego or Rainier or Mount St. Helens. So yeah, because the resources that will be enabled are going to look a little different. Um, plus, um, what I picked up on, which I'm curious your comments towards is how do you impact your residents and your residents could be children, your residents could be, you know, teenagers, high school age, um, mm -hmm. they could be parents, they could be elderly. I mean, um, and, and how do you respectively equip then your emergency systems and all of your wraparound services to then have customized conversations with all of those different populations. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty hard, hard thing to, or a challenge to overcome. Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, if, if there's anything that you take away from this podcast, it's that uh, humans are very complex human, you know, species. We don't do things in a linear fashion and there are a multitude of um, models. So protect, protective action decision models where, you know, you're, you're working towards getting that information out there and the response from humans on that information is what really is key. So things like, um, you know, is my neighbor doing something? Are they evacuating? Um, do I need more information? I don't quite understand what's happening at the volcano. Do I need more information in order to make a decision? And, you know, those things which are delaying uh, an action are the things that we really want to sort of 
work on to make sure that that people are not spending that much time. And this is where the behavioral science comes in and that you know you're really looking at shifting people's perceptions of those volcanic hazards. Um, you're making sure that their perceptions and trusted sources. So, you know, is that government official telling me that information or that news media outlet telling me that information? Are they trusted sources? Can I actually trust what they're telling me is true and do I need to evacuate? Um, and then overall, just having a behavioral shift. So understanding that you live in a high risk zone for volcanic hazards um, and that at any point, you know, the thing might pop <laughs> and um, and that although scientists are really good at monitoring um, these volcanoes, we have a lot of sensors out around them. We're beginning to understand much, much more about those volcanic you know, signals that it's giving off. Um, just understanding the uncertainty and that we don't know exactly when the volcano might erupt, but we do know that there are precursors. We do know that there are things like if it, activity at the volcano starts to increase, maybe don't go hike on Mount Hood. Uh, seems like a bad idea if there's a lot of activity increase and being able to relay that and make it important to the people living around that area, so. Well, that's great. Um, I guess we're we're nearing our, our the end of our time. So I commonly ask guests, um, hindsight being 2020, you know, what wisdom would you have given yourself 10, 15 years ago um, that you wish someone imparted on you, but they didn't. So you would like to impart it on someone else. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, I guess, you know, it's pretty cliche, but I would say it's never too late. Um, you know, at, at the time that I took that geology class, I thought there's no way I don't want to spend that much time in school. So uh, I'm going to go do something else. And I circled back around to it eventually. Um, and yeah, I would just say, you know, I'm an older graduate student in my program, but I feel like I still have um, a very happy, long life and career ahead of me. Uh, and uh, yeah, so just, you know, do your thing, do what feels right to you at the moment, but always realize that the risk of, you know, changing is, is, can be worth it. So. Oh, wise, wise, wise words. <laughs> um, so thank you, Ashley. And thank you for your time today and walking us through your path and your background, as well as some of your areas of study. It's been um, really, really interesting um, to, to hear you speak about volcanoes and the different areas and topical research areas there are, plus then how you equip people to, to help them. So well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. And I mean, I could talk about volcanoes all day long. So, <laughs> so, but I appreciate it. And thanks for thinking of me. Of course, of course. Well, we're happy to have you. And remember, all of our listeners, always ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye. <laughs>